0: So recent development in the field of biblical studies, and by recent I mean oh, around the past 150 years or so, is to utilize knowledge of the ancient world to help understand words, images, and themes in the Bible that we wouldn't otherwise understand. Okay, So tonight we're going to solve a mystery in the Song of the Sea, Az Yashir, utilizing knowledge of the ancient world. Okay, Along the way, we're going to solve a secondary mystery It comes from Psalm 93. Okay, Psalm 93, Hashem Allah is the song of the day for the sixth day, for Friday. So it's recited Friday morning, it's recited Friday evening, and it's recited on Shabbat itself. Clearly associated by our tradition with creation with the Sabbath. Okay, So our primary mystery that we're going to try to solve is in the Song of the Sea, the song recited... When the Jews leave Egypt and read aloud both in the Torah portion of the and on the 7th day of Passover. And then we're going to look at the secondary mystery in Psalm 93. So before we solve or attempt to solve these mysteries, before we attempt to solve these mysteries, can someone please tell me what the mystery is? Okay, Look at source number one, the text of the Song of the Sea. And tell me, what is a seeming glaring anachronism? What seems to be historically out of place in the Song of the Sea? The, uh, the reference to the temple, Okay, so there have been two great suggestions. One is this poetic tense of Yashir, which sounds like this is taking place in the future. I would chalk that up to poetry and definitely hear that it seems to take place, seems to indicate that this is. A futuristic text, but I would say, I don't want to dwell on that this evening, but but I hear it. Yes, sir? But
1: it just seems like among the gods, other gods. Great.
0: Okay, we're going to get to that as well. But the gentleman, what's your name in the purple? Micah. Micah. Okay. We have the text in front of
1: us? Yes. All of down. So we should look at it first and... Yeah, Okay. They Sorry, jumped the gun. The, I missed They the jumped the gun.
0: But, yes, sir?
1: Uh, Asher Shira means, uh, and he will sing.
0: Right. But yeah, so... Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like futuristic, but what I want to dwell on is what Michael pointed out. This mention, Micah, of what verse do you have in mind in particular?
2: Uh, it's, uh, Seventeen.
0: Seventeen. Do you mind reading it aloud?
2: You will bring them in. in you will bring sure. them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established.
0: Okay. Why is that anachronistic? Why is that seemingly historically out of place? Because. There is no temple yet, right? Mm. What, what was the uh, what was the thing, the predecessor of the temple? Mishkan. The Mishkan, right? The tent. When was the tent? The traveling the tabernacle is the official English translation. Now, when was that commanded? Okay. After. In fact, it was commanded in source number two. It was commanded after, ten chapters after, the Song of the Sea. Would anyone like to read source number two? English is fine. Any volunteers?
1: Sure. The Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel that everyone who wants to may bring me an offering. Here's a list of items you may expect on my behalf. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. Fine linen, goat hair for cloth. Tanned ram skins and fine goatskin leather. Acacia wood. Olive oil for the lamp. Spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and other stones to be set in the egg and the chestpiece." piece. I want the people of Israel to build me a sacred residence where I can live among
0: them. Here we have the commandment to build a Mishkan. ten chapters later. So mystery number one, our primary mystery this evening is, how do the Jews have the idea that they're to build a temple for God, or that God is to have a temple, if the commandment to build that temple only appears ten chapters later? Sir? Yes, but don't
2: we have a, a, a deeper problem in that Uh, Why would they have all of these items with them when they left Egypt if there was no notion at that point of building some kind of a sanctuary?
0: So, fair question, I would say. We're definitely told in the text that they ask for different utensils. They quote-unquote borrow, separate uh, discussion unto itself, but they definitely borrow materials that seemingly constitute the raw materials of the Mishkan. But what I want to concentrate here on is this seeming intuition that this is going to happen, that this temple is to be built, okay? Now let's look at our secondary mystery in Hashem Allah, Psalm 93. That is source number three. Would anyone like to read any volunteers? Yes, Joe.
1: The Lord reigns, he is broken
2: glory. The Lord is robed, girded with strength. The world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. Your throne stands firm as of old, you are eternal. Rivers lift up, Lord, rivers lift up their voice, rivers lift up their crashing waves. Mighty and anointed in any water,
0: than the mighty waves of the sea the Lord on high. Your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, Lord forevermore. Excellent job. Who are the two entities in this song? It's a very short song. There seem to be two actors or entities here. What are they? There's the main character and then there's this other thing. Who's the main character? Focus of this song, God. What other entity is mentioned? The water. Water. Okay, we have this rather odd mention of water. Rivers lift up, Lord. Rivers lift up their voice. Rivers lift up their crashing waves. Mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea, is the Lord on high. Then we're back to talking about God's house. Okay, so this song, which seemingly has... Two main actors, God and the sea, actually reminds us of another biblical song, namely the Song of the Sea. Let's look at the handy-dandy chart you have, source number four. If we look on the right-hand side, we have Az Yashir, the left-hand side, Hashem Psalm 93. In both songs, we have mention of the glory of God, Ga'o ga-a. In Az Yashir, and the phrase, the word Geut from the same source, the same root, glory is mentioned in Hashem Malach, the glory of God. Next down, in both songs, something of God is established. Mikdash Hashem Kenu the verse, verse 17 that we've already mentioned, refers to God's Mikdash as being established. And in Hashem Malach, we are told As Baltimoth, the world is firmly established, same Hebrew root, and napon kisachah the same shoresh, the same root there, referring to God's throne as being established. Parallel number three, in both songs we have mentioned not just of water but mayim Adirim, The exact same phrase, strong water, is mentioned in both songs. And now finally, we have this mention, in verse 13 in the Song of the Sea, It's mentioned of the God's holy abode. And in Hashem Allah, Psalm 93, we are told, Again, this mention of similar phrase. Now, it's worth pointing out that in Psalm 93, the phrase appears as, To your house, holiness is adorning Okay, in a Dead Sea Scrolls manuscript, people familiar with Dead Sea Scrolls Dead Sea Scrolls manuscript actually has a version of this psalm which drops the Lamed so it reads seemingly to align it more exactly with the phrase in the Song of the Sea Okay, so I think it's pretty clear that the psalm Psalm 93 in Sefer Tehilim is pulling a lot of its imagery from the earlier Song of the Sea. I think that's a pretty convincing case. Okay, and if we had to distill these parallels between the two songs, what would they be? What's, uh, what's at stake in both of these songs? What's emphasized? Whose supremacy? God's supremacy. There's mention of the establishment of God's throne, his house, the world. And okay, these things seem to be related. There's the mention of what other entity?
1: The waves the, water. the waves,
0: the water. And then again, there's mention of God's holy abode. What do these things have to do with each other? So let's sharpen the two questions that I want to focus on. Question number one. Az Yashir. Let's go with, actually, let's go with question number two first. Question number two. In Hashem Allah, What do the elements of this psalm have to do with each other? We talk about the earth being established. We talk about God. Then we hear about the water and its crashing waves. And then we talk about God again. Seemingly, there's no linear progression. There's no flow to this psalm. It seems to be jumbled together elements that don't seem to have a clear relationship. And in Az as we've mentioned, there is the glaring, seemingly historical anachronism of verse 17, the mention of God's temple. Okay, so how are we going to solve these two mysteries? Okay, let's look to see how traditional commentators, before there was a thing called modern scholarship, traditional Rishonim, tried to address our primary mystery, that of attempting to explain verse 17. Okay, let's look at Rashi. Would anyone like to read Rashi? I will just warn you, I will interrupt you rudely every few seconds. But despite that warning, if I can have a volunteer, I would appreciate it. Any volunteer to read Rashi? would not enter the land, he does not say, you will bring okay. okay, stop. So while this doesn't immediately tell us where Rashi's going, it does seemingly foreshadow that he's talking about what time period? During the time period, during the lifetime of Moshe, of Moses? It has to be at the end. No, right? He's saying Moshe prophesies that he would not enter the land, meaning, seemingly what he's prophesying is something that Moshe is not going to see. Ergo, it's not the... It's not, the, it's not the Mishkan. It's not talking about something he is going to see. It's talking about something that he won't live to see. Okay, keep going. Literally to sit in. The temple is aligned with the throne on high. Okay, keep going.
1: The cancellation marks
0: <laughs> on the dash makes clear that
1: the sanctuary of the Lord not the sanctuary of the Lord.
0: Okay, that's a grammatical point. Now, here's the focus. The love is the sanctuary for the whole world was made with a
1: single hand, by all hands found in the earth. But the sanctuary is made with both hands. And will, when will the sanctuary be made with God's two hands, when, both the Lord will reign forever and ever, in the
0: future, when the kingdom is entirely true. Okay, so according to Rashi, fascinatingly, this verse in the Song of the Sea, when the Jews left Egypt, is not referring to, now count with me here, is not referring to what? The Mishkan. It's not referring to the temple. temple. The first temple is not referring to the okay. second temple. It's referring to the temple that will be built by God's hands, namely the Messianic Temple, the third temple. Wow. Okay, now let's look at Ibn Ezra, who's more of a Pashtan. He dwells more on the literal, contextual explanation of the text. Anyone like to read? Very short. Yes?
1: suggests that he to Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, where the would dwell.
0: Okay, in other words, Ibn Ezra says, it does not refer to the thing that we... They think it might refer to namely the Mishkan, which is going to be commanded in ten chapters, but rather refers to the temple. Well, how do we know it refers to the temple? Because the Mishkan is movable or immovable. Mm-hmm. movable It does not dwell on a mountain. 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 Ergo, the reference to a mountain must be reference to the faith of Temple Mount, exactly. Okay, now let's look at the Sforno. So the Sforno is great. I love the Sforno. Why? Because he tries to have his interpretive cake, and eat it too. Okay? He splits the difference. Would anyone like to read Swarna? Anyone here? There we go. Okay. Um, Bahar-nachtha. Bahar-nachtha.
1: The mountain of the temple, of which it is said, on the mountain where Hashem is seen. Okay, so
0: that phrase he says, that's the Beit HaMikdash, because it's on Har HaBay.
1: Which your hands established, as it says, let them make me a sanctuary according to all that I show
0: you. In other words, the commandment, 10 chapters after the Song of the Sea, to build a Mishkan. So he splits it and says half the verse is referring to the temple and half is referring to the tabernacle. Mm. Guess, figure he has a 50 50 chance of being right. <laughs> okay, now let's look at modern interpreters. Okay, Umberto Cosito, an Italian Bible scholar, a personal. Yes. Can I just on? ask a question? Anything.
1: Um, you're leaving us here and this is so so fascinating, but are, you gonna, are we supposed to be thinking, does it matter if there is some sort of poetic distance or difference, or if there's no, uh, what does Rashi famously say, In there is no chronological forward and backwards, it's allowed, the Torah is allowed to say things in the in the future that really have happened in the past and vice versa? So are you... Um,
0: so I would say there's definitely that option in the Jewish tradition, what, what I'm going to try to make a case for today is a contextual explanation that will satisfy us modern thinkers without suspending our belief in terms of a song that appears in a particular con- biblical context as uh, being something that the people living at the time wouldn't fully understand. Meaning, I would imagine just rationally thinking the people who left Egypt and experienced and sang the Song of the Sea are presumably not, I would say from a rational perspective, talking about the Third Temple if they don't even know about the Mishkan. right? So I'm going to try to crack that nut. Okay. Okay, So Umberto Cassito, an Italian biblical scholar who is a personal favorite of Rabbi David Silver, says as follows, It cannot be deduced from here that the song, or these verses, meaning verse 17, was composed after the construction of the temple, for without doubt the Israelites intended, even before entering the land, to build therein a sanctuary to the Lord their God. So in other words, if someone tells you something cannot be deduced from here. It means that they're responding to people who said, it can can be deduced from here, that this verse was stuck in, or the whole song even, was stuck in by a later editor. Virtual Casudo was someone who went toe-to-toe with the Bible critics. And they're saying, ah, the Bible critics, the redactor... The, the biblical authors rather they, they had a slip of the pen they gave away the fact that they're writing at a later time not the context of Yitzhiyeh Mitzrayim of the Exodus but they're writing at a time when the temple existed and so they retrojected that back into the text okay, he's responding to them and saying no this is not the case why? well let's look at our next source Professor Nachum Sarna writes as follows Hebrew Harnak is a unique phrase in the Bible It occurs in Ugaritic literature in relation to the sacred mountain Saphon, on which stood the sanctuary of the Canaanite deity, Baal. Here, this standard religious phrase, prevalent in the ancient Near East, is employed by the poet, in monotheized form, totally emptied of its pagan content. In plain English, does anyone understand what he just said? What did he say, yeah? I think
1: what he's saying is that uh, this phrase is borrowed from ancient Near East, uh, literature, but
0: it's being paganized. Exactly. And now used, uh, used in a spiritual way that we uh, resonate with Jews. Perfect. In other words, it's taking conventions and even phrases of pagan creation myths and it's stripping them of their pagan content and form and doing giving us a monotheized version of it. In other words, it's responding to and being contra the theology of Israel's ancient pagan neighbors. Okay? So let's examine what these pagan stories were. Let's have a crash course in the creation myths of ancient Israel's neighbors. Ready? Okay, let's look at the Baal epic. Source number six. The Baal epic is a cycle of stories about the Canaanite ba- god Baal, also known as Hadad, the god of rain, storm, and fertility. By the way, have we as good biblical readers ever heard of this god Baal? Mm-hmm all the they're, they're time. They're he, of he of the, the infamous Elijah versus the 450 mm-hmm. prophets. Okay? These stories are written in Ugarit. Ugarit had close connections to the Hittite, i.e. the Khit, Khiti Empire, and was at its height from around 1450 B.C. until 1200 B.C. Okay, Now we're going to read inside this is very exciting. We're going to read inside the Baal Epic in its original English. Okay. Okay, so you have to have in mind, here I'm going to try has anyone here either read Thor comic books or seen Thor or Avengers movies? Okay? Some of you, okay? So this is, for those of you, this will sound exactly... No one wants to admit it. You've all seen it. And if not, you're going to go on Netflix tonight and watch it. This sounds like ancient, like Thor. Okay? It's going to sound like ancient pagan gods having war with each other. Okay? Someone like to read this. These sons of mine?
2: now mighty Baal son of Dagon desired the kingship of the gods okay
0: so what's the issue here? supremacy among the gods okay
2: she contended with prince Yam Nahar okay so
0: he's going to fight this guy whose name is Yam Nahar the water guy right the water god whose name by the way is this dual name Yam of course being what's mentioned throughout Az Yashir and Nahar being What's mentioned throughout Psalm ninety-three? Okay, keep going.
2: The son of El. Mm-hmm. No interjection. <laughs> <laughs> They'll come. Don't worry. But kindly El, father Shunem, mm-hmm. decided the case in favor of his son. He gave the kingship to Prince Yam. He gave the power to Judge Nahar. First, mm-hmm. Yam came to rule the guards with an iron fist. Caused them to labor and toil under his reign. They cried unto their mother, Asherah,
0: Asherah, lady of the sea. Okay, so Asherah again, another pagan god, this goddess that we recognize from our Bible. So they, they, they are the other gods are crying to their mother, Asherah, because Yam Nahar is being mean to them. That's what's going on here. Okay, keep going, please.
2: They convinced her to confront Yam to intercede in their behalf. Asherah went into the presence of Prince Yam. She came before Judge Nahar. She begged that he release his grip upon the gods' and her sons. But mighty Yam declined her request. She offered favors to the tyrant, but powerful Nahar softened not his heart. Finally, kindly Asherah, who loves her children, offered herself to the gods. <coughs> She offered her own body to the Lord of rivers. Yamnahar agreed to this, and Asherah returned to the source of the two rivers. Yamnahar she went home to the court of El. She came before the divine council and spoke of her plan to the gods, her children. Baal was infuriated by her speech. He would not consent to surrendering Great Asherah to the tyrant Yam Nahar. He swore to the gods that he would destroy Prince Yam. He would lay to rest the tyranny of Judge Nahar.
0: Okay, so Baal is annoyed that Asherah had to offer herself to the evil Prince Yam Nahar. So he goes off to battle Yam Nahar. Now let's skip to chapter 3, where we're going to have this this Kotar we'll This, who I think of as the quote-unquote hype man of Baal. He's the guy who gets Baal all excited to wage war, and he's giving him a speech to get him ready to go. He says, Did I not tell you, O Prince Baal, nor declare, O writer of clouds, lo your enemies, O Baal, lo your enemies, will you smite? Wait a second. What does this sound like? book, but get more specific. Lo your enemies, O Baal, lo your enemies, will you smite? Sounds like what kind of poetic device? It's parallelism Parallelism, particularly what scholars call Staircase Parallelism meaning A, B, A, C okay, The first element and the third element are the same right? Low your enemies, obal Low your enemies, will you smite okay, Do we have an example or four of these in The Song of the Sea? Turn all the way back Source 1 Can anyone think of an example? We might right now not be underlined. <laughs> so we have... Mi enemies of all, your enemies, above, law your enemies right? What else? <laughs> right. Also we have... Right, the same point of construction. And there's one more. Ad yavor Hashem, ad amzu kanita. Right. So in all of these phrases, for example, verse three, God is a man of war. God, man of war. I'm sorry. Verse three, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. So the repetition of Lord. Then in verse six, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy, and so on and so on. Here okay, so we have the repetition of the first and third elements. Okay. Now what's interesting is this poetic phenomenon of staircase parallelism actually helps us understand the most famous verse in the entire Jewish tradition. What do I mean? If I was to wake you up in the middle of the night, midnight, 3 a.m., wake up. What is the most famous verse in all of Judaism? The Shema Yisrael. See, I don't even need to wake you up. So, how is that staircase parallelism? Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem, Okay, now that verse has vexed translators forever and a half. Why? How do you translate that verse? Hashem our God, Hashem one. It's one. Is one. Right. So that's the conventional explanation. However, when we say Hashem is our God, Hashem is one. Okay? But there's no meaning the Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem our God, it only works if you say Hashem is our God, but that construction of Hashem Kinu, meaning Hashem is our God, never appears in the Bible. You have to stick in that is there that doesn't seemingly belong there. Okay? It's a little messy. You break your teeth on it. But how do you not break your teeth on it? And this, the credit goes to a former roommate of mine in the Upper West Side, Judah Kraut, who is in a doctoral program at the University of Pennsylvania. He noted that A, this is an example of staircase parallelism, and B, how do you read staircase parallelism? Let's look at our example. Low your enemies, O Baal. Low your enemies, will you smite? Is really meant to be read as what? Low your enemies, O Baal. Will you smite? You drop the repetitive element because it's poetic. In other words, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, is really Hashem Elokeinu Echad. The Lord our God is one. You just drop that second repetitive element. You can actually work that through all of the examples we looked at. Right, so, for example, when we say in Hebrew, Hashem Ishmael Chema, Hashem Shemo, the Lord, God of War, the Lord is His name. The point is, the Lord, God of War, is His name. Okay, so you read it ABC. Okay, that was just what I hope was an interesting aside. Back to, back to our text. So we have, the point of all that was to show you the same poetic device appears in both places.
2: I have a question. Yes, sir. Uh, would you uh, also suggest that the, the word Asherah is a play on Asherah?
0: Because, uh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that until I heard some rumblings. It definitely a lot, you know, I, I don't know that the root is there necessarily, but definitely, you know, in the oral sense, I do hear it. I mean, it does evoke it. You know, that that's where I'm to go on that. Okay, let's look back inside. Lo, you will vanquish your foes. You will take your eternal kingdom, your everlasting sovereignty. Does that remind you of anything in the Song of the Sea? Hashem. Yim, lovely, lovely. Hashem, God, will rule forever and ever. Okay? Kozar brings down two clubs, proclaims their name. Your name is Yagrush. Yagrush, expel Yam, expel Yom from his throne, etc., etc. You can skip along. The club swoops from the hands of Baal like an eagle from his fingers. It strikes the head of Prince Yom between the eyes of Judge Nahar. Yam sings, falls to the earth. Baal drags and hangs Yam, destroys Judge Nahar. So who wins this epic steel cage match between Baal and Yom Nahar? Baal is. Okay? Now, zoom ahead to chapter 6. Loudly, Bull El, who is Asherah's father, shouts, Lo, there is no house unto Baal like the gods, not a court like the sons of Asherah. If the handmaid of Asherah will make the bricks, a house shall be built for Baal like the gods. Okay, later on, Baal sends a message to his lover or I have a word to tell you. Come and I will reveal it in the midst of my mountain, the divine Saphon, in the sanctuary, in the mountain of my inheritance. Which in Hebrew is har naklatha, i.e., the phrase that Nakhum was talking about, this is it. Right? When he was saying the same phrase pops up, this is it. Yes, sir. I, I to go back to no, go ahead.
1: Is there a yam nahar, a yam
0: and a nahar? Same guy. If they just because of poetic variation, they switch off what they call. It. It's all one guy, double name. Okay, hey, so. By the way, how do we know from the Bible... Right, so here, we're, we, this is not a biblical, source. So this non-biblical source mentioned that Baal has a mountain called Safon. Is there a mention of a Baal having a mountain named Safon in our biblical text? Absolutely, Baal Safon. Let's look at source number 7. Right before the Song of the Sea, we were told... That by the of Shelly More the Lord says, Moses, the verabana Israel, Via Shu, Biafanul, Lithne Piafi wrote, Bain Hayam, Translation, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp before he wrote between Megdol and the sea, before Baal Tsefon. In other words, the Torah tells us there was a mountain known to be Baal's holy mountain. Okay, so what are the themes in this ancient pagan creation story? There's a battle for supremacy of the gods. Particularly, there's a battle between a god and a water god. And what happens to mark the victory of the victorious god over the water? What is built? Sanctuary. Sanctuary. A house to the victorious god. Very similar to Yashir and Psalm 93. So let's you say, this is a random, this is all one random coincidence. You'll say, Stu, you got lucky. You found this one thing the scholars found. This is the only example where you have these common themes. You're out of luck. Because there is another example where the exact same thing happens. Okay, source number 8, let's look at Enuma Elish. Okay, so Enuma Elish, its other claim to fame, besides being read tonight, is that it gives us the name, or the origin of the name of what Jewish hero? Mortify. Right? so Enuma Elish is a Babylonian creation story that centers around the supremacy of Marduk and the creation of humankind for the service of the gods okay? again it's, it's a text that predates the bible so in this text Marduk fights against a water goddess In this story is a goddess as opposed to Prince Yam Tiamat is a huge female dragon that is fought, that represents chaos, that represents water and Marduk defeats Tiamat and cuts her body in half now let's read this description of preparation for and then the actual battle between Marduk and Tiamat. Okay, so the gods say to Marduk, O Marduk, you are indeed our avenger. We have granted you kingship over the universe entire. When in assembly you sit, your word shall be supreme. What does that sound like? What, is that, what image does that bring to us? Sitting among the assembly of gods. We... By. By Hashem. who is like you among the assembly of gods Hey, when assembly you say your word shall be supreme your weapon shall not fail they shall smash your foes he released the arrow it tore her belly it cut through her inside, splitting the heart having thus subdued her he extinguished her life he cast down her carcass to stand upon it after he had slain Tiamat hold oh, on Tiamat does that, does that sound like a Hebrew word to you? Tahom Right, Tehom. If you flip back to the Song of the Sea, verse five, there is mention of Tehomot Yekasimu. It sounds like Tiamat. Okay, so in this ancient pagan creation story, we have a word that sounds like a word that appears not only in Az Yashir, but as Rabbi Silver has pointed out on more than one occasion, appears in the creation narrative in Genesis. We are told by R'Shaytato vavo v'chusha al to Tehom. Okay. Anyway, back to our story. After he had slain Tiamat, the leader, her band was shattered, her troop broken up. He split her like a shellfish into two parts. Half of her he set up and sealed as the sky pulled down the bar and posted guards. He bade them to allow not for waters to escape. The Anunnaki, a group of lower gods, opened their mouths and said to Marduk, their lord, Now, O lord, you have caused our deliverance. What shall be our homage to you? Let us build a shrine whose name shall be called Lo, a chamber for our nightly rest. Let us repose in it, let us build a throne, a recess for his abode. Which, if you were to translate into Hebrew, would be what phrase? Malchon, a shivtachah. When Marduk heard this, brightly glowed his features. Let its brickwork be fashioned, you shall name it the sanctuary. So again, we've seen here the same themes as Hashem Allah, as Yashir, and these stories. There's a battle between God and water. There's a sanctuary. Oh, the battle is over supremacy. There's a sanctuary built to mark the victory of the winning God. And there's not only the same poetic device of staircase parallelism used in all these stories, There's all, or in some of these stories, there's also the same phraseology. These phrases, same phrases are popping up. So how do we explain this? Why why might these stories, or why do these stories, have these similarities? Yes, sir?
1: Well, it's a well-accepted premise among social sciences and the concept of cultural diffusion or Awesome. Uh, adjacent uh, cultures uh, borrow different things from the
0: surrounding day. Awesome. And and where the Jews, this is a totally a leading question, were the Jews in Egypt, which was like the economic and social hub in perfect position to hear all these stories floating around? Absolutely. You know, and if you even want to maybe bring a rabbinic text that alludes to this possibility, the rabbis tell us that the Jews were on the 49th level of impurity, meaning they were steeped in idol worship. Ergo, they presumably were familiar with idol worship, pagan creation stories. If you want to go one step further, you can say, well, who is the band leader in Yashir, Moshe. Where did Moshe grow up? Where did he spend his formative years? In the house of Pharaoh, he had access to the royal library, and he presumably was raised hearing and maybe even reading these stories. Okay, so there are all sorts of I think historical contextual explanations as to how the Jews would be familiar with these stories. Well,
2: why would he have the Jewish stories rather than the Egyptian stories?
0: That's, if you invite me back, we can talk about the particular <laughs> Egyptian context. And there's lots. There's lots in the Plagues. Many people have written about this for another time, maybe next year. But what I want to talk about here is these particular stories floating around, ours is a response to theirs. Like Nahum Sarna mentioned, in our version, it's stripped of all pagan content. I mean, you hear echoes of it. You hear shades of it. But it's not really there. Right? In our story, God doesn't battle the sea. God uses the sea as a tool to defeat his very human enemies. To throw them under the sea. Okay? The sea is a tool of God. Okay? There's no competition. There's no battle. Our God is never under threat, unlike in the other stories. Similarly, in Psalm 93, and now we can figure out what those elements have to do with each other. There's the presence of water... First we're told God created the world, as firm, then there's this mention of water roaring, but then we're, we reaffirm God's rulership being firm. In other words, the water poses no threat at all in Psalm 93. It's mentioned, but unlike in these pagan stories, it never actually rises up to threaten God. It just makes a lot of inconsequential noise. Let's contrast our text theology with that of the pagan stories, source number nine. Anyone like to read?
1: Marduk's victory and resultant kingship were enshrined in his temple Esadil, which expressed his newly attained supremacy in architectural form. The other gods built the temple for him, which was their way of acknowledging his sole kingship.
0: Okay, so it was only after a battle with the sea that Marduk's authority was recognized. However, source number 10, in Psalm 93, however, No combat comes into question. God rules forever. His name is in each line of the psalm. His presence ends any dispute. His presence further manifests in 93.5 as well. Divine power is always contested power. The struggle for power must always be fought for the survival of the world. Psalm 93, however, the question of power among the divinity's rivals is already settled. There's no actual fight. So now we understand why the McDosh is mentioned. In the context of the Song of the Sea. In other words, the Jews, having been well versed in these stories, knew, intuited, but also knew that the natural reaction on the part of people whose God is victorious over the sea or with the sea is to do what? So to, do mark, to build a sanctuary, parentheses on a holy mountain, close parentheses, to build a sanctuary to mark the victory and the supremacy of that God. In other words, our stories, our songs say, "You got it all wrong, pagans." There's only one ultimate God. He is our God, and we're going to build that temple to eternalize His authority. So, faz- yes, yeah, sir.
1: Where is the uh, verbiage "Tibla Amo Aris" where the Earth swallows, uh, I guess, God's enemies? Where does that come into play? It looks like the Earth is also teamed up with the water that defeats the enemy.
0: Yeah, I think that there's uh, there's definitely you know poetic imagery having to do with the, the elements of foundational elements of the earth with, which tie into the fact that this is referencing as Psalm 93 clearly demonstrates creation type images right? the idea of the earth swallowing up and its foundational elements at play here there's definitely that imagery in the song even though it's not explicitly about creation it's referencing images having to do with creation type things Okay, but I, what, what I want to dwell on or what I want to conclude with is that this is not or hopefully is not just interesting from a purely historical perspective, but I think actually has relevance to us, both in terms of understanding our prayers, but contemporary relevance on the whole for us as Jews. So who builds the house of the victorious gods in the ancient pagan creation myths? The other gods. The other gods build the house to mark the victory of their chief god. Who is elevated to that role in the Song of the Sea, people. People. Human beings are the ones who end up building the temple. In other words, we are given that privilege by God that is granted in those other cultures only to other gods and goddesses. We are elevated to, in a certain sense, being in a divine role. This is actually reaffirmed in another way that our creation story is different than that of the pagans. Let's look at the next source. What caused the battle between... Yeah, I'm sorry. What
1: do you see in the soul of the sea that people are building God's
0: temple? So you don't see it, you but see you, see, you see You God see the opposite. People. They intuit that it's going to happen, but what ends up happening is God commands them to build it. That's why. Thank you for Sharp. Yes, correct. I, perhaps I can
2: interject at this time. Uh, you're channeling Chazal very much so. Medrash Rabba, Shmot, Rabbah, on this very Shira, has many thoughts on Oz Yoshir. And the very first one actually cites Psalm 93 and compares the two And Hazal say that the meaning of the Chokes Acha may Oz May Olamata is the following May Olamata, you've always been the king, but who made you into an emperor? You see, there's a difference between a king and an emperor. When a king goes into battle, with his troops and is victorious, he stands to review them. However, an emperor, as the membership calls him in Augustus, gets to sit. May Ola, says Shmo Brava, you've always been the king, but who made you into an emperor? Now who allows you, who prepared you are to be able to sit? May Oz. When Moshe and is Royal. I like it. So oh, in Thank this, you. And we're the We are the electors. This is a very humanistic very humanistic
0: Thank you. Thank you for that. Now let's look at another element and with this, with this contrast we'll finish off. Let's look at what caused the battle between Tiamat and Marduk in Enuma Elish. Tiamat, who once protected the younger generations of gods, has her peace disturbed by their clamor. Now, remember, this is a creation story, okay? Consequently, she hatches a plot to wipe out the troublemakers. Why? Because they were disturbing her what? Her peace, her sleep, her rest. Maneuver she organizes with other divine or numinous helpers, especially her lover, Kingu. Though one may dispute the legitimacy of an annihilation based on the mere disturbance of peace, ancient and Eastern cultures deemed divine rest the highest good. This conceptual context provides essential for a proper theological assessment of God's magnanimous rest in the genesis accounting of creation. Divine repose in the ancient world was also proof of power. For gods who enjoy the luxury of rest belong to the highest class of divinity, obliging the inferior classes of gods to undertake sundry labors. This pagan outlook, in other words, in which only gods get to rest so that others can do their work for them, stands in marked contrast to the Jewish Sabbath. If we look at our last source, we are told, read in English, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You shouldn't do any work, nor should you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, or your cattle, or the stranger who is within your settlements. In other words, Shabbat is not an opportunity to have everyone do your work for you while you relax on the beach, but everyone is resting. Everyone is elevated to that divine rest. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So to summarize, we know that unlike what the pagans believed, our God created the world, under no and took his people out of Egypt under no threat from any other god or goddess and gave us this greatest gift the gift of the Sabbath the gift of Shabbat where we and everyone in our household rests just like God in this manner we are also like divine beings so may we take the message of these prayers to heart and act in a manner befitting divine beings both on Shabbat and hopefully the rest of the week as well and thereby help bring about the ultimate redemption and the rebuilding of the third temple that Rashi mentioned way back when, speedily in our days. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. does that
2: stand in contrast to Hashem lo the which we have in the, in the Psalms, the idea, of just the opposite, that God neither sleeps nor slumbers, as a contrast to the, the ancient God. Question, please, sir. Sure,
0: he noted that we have this idea that God doesn't slumber, which is in contrast to God rests on Shabbat, we're told he doesn't sleep unlike the divine beings in these pagan stories. Thank you for that. Excellent point. Any other questions? Yes? I just want to go
1: back to the earth them up. Sure. So, uh, is that a poetic uh, thing that Moses was about, definitely poetic, but I think yeah. the idea of drowning, meaning it
0: looks like, like, the question was, is the earth swallowing up the Egyptians? that meant poetically? Well, I would say definitely on some level, poetically, but even the idea of drowning seems to be the water is swallowing up. You, you know, you disappear. The, the earth
1: is swallowing up. Like Korach, earth is swallowing up. Right, it's a great
0: question on the text. I don't know, you know, I wasn't there. I don't, I don't know. What does Haz, what do the rabbis
1: say? I don't know. know have I'd have to, have, to have to look into that. There must be two types of uh, death. needed
0: out. Yeah, thank you. Any other questions? Uh, Thank you. General,
2: yeah. um, the sources that you cited for these Canaanite uh, stories—where mm-hmm. are they? Where are they taken from? The answer. Is it, uh, no, they were discovered by
0: they were discovered by scholars in cuneiform uh, texts, and thankfully for us, they're available for free in English. Um, but they were discovered in the past 150 years or so, and scholars, upon translating them, said, "Hey, wait a second these sound eerily similar to Biblical texts, and hopefully, as i try tried to make the case tonight, help us better understand the Bible and its original context. Yes, sir.
1: Are there any other, if they're not uh, songs or poems, are there any other major texts, especially those that, I mean, this is liturgical, it, we sing the shirahiyam mm-hmm. every day, and we sing it specifically on Shabbat, at least once, usually twice, at least, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there, this is totally central. It's almost as if it's a mantra that we are repeating and re-repeating and re-re-repeating, affirming the difference between us and them. Okay, between our God, capital G, sure. and the little gods. And it's it's like a redoing, isn't it, of the whole uh, Egyptian experience? With didn't Pharaoh say, "I don't know your God. Who is this God? I don't oh. know him." So is it like is that part of our announcement to both ourselves and to everybody else? This is our God, in contradistinction to your God this one, this is our God?
0: Yeah, I definitely think it makes a lot of sense that prayers we recite and uh, parts of the Bible that we read help us with our own self-definition, remind us every day who we are and who we are not. Definitely. Are there others
1: in the uh, in right. I mean, liturgy?
0: Mean, that, there are plenty that of, you know, been wait extensively. Wait. I highly recommend all of, his, all of his books. He has a particular book on Psalms, I think it's actually called On Psalms, that he does this with many different uh, chapters of the book of Psalms where he shows how they're playing with of you know pagan convention and undermining it and subverting that theology. So <laughs> did the people,
2: though, that there were other gods, just our God is better? Ah.
0: That's a good God? question. I wish I knew the answer to that. Clearly, verses in the Bible recognize at the very least belief in other gods, for sure. And there are these phrases, Michael Hashem, right? What does that mean to a strict monotheist? I don't know the answer to that question. Um, you mean you could chalk it up to poetry, you could chalk it up to alluding... Oh, I'm sorry. Who is like you among the gods? That very question or that very exclamation, it's, not, it's meant rhetorically, uh, clearly presumes that there are other gods. But you could say it presumes belief in other gods. But, you know, you can read the vast literature on uh, monotheism and its development.